song uh, certainly calls to the surface of our hearts uh, some of those questions that we wrestle with. When I was uh, putting this sermon together, I realized that the question of where is God is a question that virtually everyone asks. You may have whispered it under your breath at some point in time in your life. You may have, uh, in a moment of frustration, said it rather irreverently, uh, maybe even screamed it when you thought no one was listening, but you just really had it and you were disgusted. And All of us ask that question. And as Bob mentioned earlier, we're we're taking a journey through um, five of the Psalms. There are 150 of them in all in the Bible, but we're looking at just five. And they're, they're just, these psalms were written by King David, who was the most popular and memorable king of the nation of Israel. And I look at these as David just kind of takes his own human heart and he peels back all the layers of, uh, of cover that you and I normally have. And he just says, here's my heart. These are the things I think about. These are the things I process. These are the questions I have. These are sometimes the unanswered questions that I have. I think that's why oftentimes we can relate to the book of Psalms in the Bible because it kind of speaks for us what we often feel. So I welcome you to that journey this morning and, and uh, we're going to take a look at what the Bible has to say about that particular question that we all uh, uh, face from time to time. Before we do that, I want to encourage you to take your program on the inside of your program There's a half sheet of notes, uh, fill-in-the-blank style to help you follow along in what I'm saying, also to take it home with you. And at least once during the week to read back through it will help you process some of the things that you're going to start to process here this morning. Uh, For those of you who are new to New Life, my name is Ron, and it's my privilege most Sunday mornings to get to speak to you out of God's Word. And uh, if you end up like most of the people who come to this church You'll take those notes home, and at least once in a week, you'll work your way through them because, as you'll find out, we deal with real-life issues week after week after week. The Bible, above all, is God's owner's manual for our life, and so it has some very, very practical information, uh, and so we deal with those kinds of subjects every week here. So where's God? Where, Where is God in our lives? Today, we're going to look at five lessons in... And um, I want to start out by saying that we have this kind of innate sense in us that I call an overly simplistic perspective on life. And all of us are kind of born believing and thinking and hoping that good things happen to what kind of people? Good people and bad things only happen to what kind of people? Bad people. And you know, if life just worked that way, it'd be great. We'd have a pigeonhole for everything, wouldn't we? So your buddy has something terrible happen to him. You go right to him and say, fess up, man. Because bad things only happen to bad people. And is that a bad thing? It's a bad thing. You're a bad dude. What happened? You got to tell me. And in fact, if you pick up your Bible and you read the book of Job, that's the whole premise upon which that book was written. Job had some terrible things happen to him and his buddies all gathered around him and said, fess up. You got to be a bad guy because it's our basic understanding that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. Now, those of you 
who have lived through the teenage years. I'm going to guess that somewhere during your teenage years, your parents said to you this statement. You just have to face it. Life isn't, what's the next word? Fair. And it isn't. See, what you have to understand is that life doesn't follow that rule that says good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. Life doesn't follow that rule, even though we would love for it to and try to make it. That's why we have to understand that life isn't fair. Every day in front of us, we see the opposite of that lived out. We see sometimes very bad people have good things happen to them. And we see sometimes very good people have bad things happen to them. And it's in those moments that we tend to cry out, where is God? Because we have a sense that if God were really in control, then good things would happen to only good people and bad things would happen to only bad people. And yes, there is coming a time when God will be in full control. That's called heaven. And when that happens... All of our nice, neat little pigeonholes will work because only good things will be happening to only good people. But until then, we have to live life here. And in this life, it doesn't happen like that. Now, if you were here last week, you saw a drama at the end of our service that I know you will remember uh, because it was just, it was powerful and it spoke to all of our hearts. And it was six people up here on the stage, and they were painting uh, different pictures. And when all the pictures were put together, they formed the face of Christ. And it was beautiful and wonderful and something we won't ever forget. But while they were doing that, there was a song that was playing. And the song that was playing has a very simple title, God is God. And the rest of that phrase in the song is, and I am not. And then there was a phrase that says, I can only see a part of the picture he's painting. And the inference there is, when I only see a part of the picture, I don't fully comprehend what's going on in that picture because I can only see part of it. Now that song was written by Stephen Curtis Chapman, who's a world-renowned Christian performer, songwriter, musician, all-around great guy. He penned those lyrics, not knowing that a few years after he penned them, that he would need to live there and how deeply he would need to live there. We're going to show you an interview from Good Morning America, and it's, uh, it's a little bit longer than what we would normally show, but I want you to see what goes on in the heart of a person who has a deep faith in God but they encounter a trial that's of mammoth proportions and extremely unfair. Take a look. And now our GMA exclusive interview with award-winning Christian music star Stephen Curtis Chapman and his beautiful family. They are speaking out for the first time about the death of their beloved five-year-old daughter, Maria. She died this past May after her teenage brother accidentally ran over her in the family driveway. And as you can imagine, their grief is still enormous so soon after a tragedy like this. But when I sat down with them recently in their home in Nashville, Tennessee, I saw a family closer than ever before 
there for one another and a family facing the future with great hope. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Maria Sue Chapman. Oh, That's the crowd. Okay, they're ready. Go. You're on. For Maria Sue Chapman, singing was a family gift that came naturally. Her father, multi-award winning Christian music megastar, Stephen Curtis Chapman. This is life we've been given, made to be. Stephen and his wife, Mary Beth, were already the parents of three children, yet they were inspired by the encouragement of their daughter, Emily, to go three times to China to adopt their little girls, Shohanna, Stevie Joy, and their youngest, Maria. They invited me to their home outside of Nashville, and Stephen remembered the moment he knew they were destined to return to China and adopt Maria, the orphan girl he met while on tour there. It was an email of this photo from his trip that changed all their lives. And as it opened, it was instant. I knew that that was a picture of a daddy kissing his little girl. It wasn't just a guy with a, a little child that needed a home. It was a daddy and a little girl. It's just so clear when I saw it. The Chapman family was complete, and Maria grew into her role as the baby girl of this loving family. We're washing dishes and we're having some fun. about your daughter we knew from the get-go that, that she was a firecracker and you know you, you know even in China just personality contagious just complete uh, just joyful happy little little baby tragically on May 21st Maria died in a family driveway accident her 17 year old brother Will Franklin was at the wheel he was returning home. The girls had been playing on the playground in complete accident. She was actually um, excited that he was coming home, and he is so great with the girls, and she was running to see him and, and you know, ran, you know, into the back of the car. So. And, Stephen, I know that um, you had the presence of mind when you were getting into the car to go to the hospital, and understand well was just inconsolable mm. and you you rolled down the window and you told him something as we drove out the driveway and I really don't remember this it was actually Dave Uncle Dave that told me he said you you rolled the window down and just very loudly yelled it really um, you know as with as much uh, strength as you can muster and just said, Will Franklin, your father loves you. It felt like at that moment, you know, we we weren't sure. I don't know, I think somewhere in our hearts maybe had a sense that we were maybe losing or had already lost uh, our daughter. But I just really had a deep concern in my heart that I wouldn't lose two children in, uh, as a result of this because I knew what Will was was struggling with. How do you grieve and also be there for your children? We've talked a lot and you will hear all of us talk about the process of grieving with hope. Um, that's such a, for us, that, that's what has kept us breathing, kept us alive, is that while we are grieving this process, there is a hope that we have that we're anchored to in the midst of just what sometimes seems unbearable. I've said, you know, 
somewhat coldly, I don't, I don't care whose lives are touched by this story and whose lives are changed or what good comes of it. At the heart of a mom, I want Maria back. Mm. And that's, you know, that's what I want people to know is I want mm. Maria back. But because I know that she is completely whole, because of my faith, I know that she's completely whole and completely okay. And I'm going to see her again. As a mom, I have to shift that grief to go. I have Emily, who's getting married, and her fiance Tanner, and Caleb, and his girlfriend Julia, and Will Franklin. You know, my he's my baby boy, and and then Joey and Stevie, and my grief gets shifted to making sure they're as whole and as healthy as they can be. And through that then when people's lives are changed and touched then I can be okay with that but as the heart of a mom I'd like to have Maria back for the three oldest Chapman children Emily Caleb and Will healing comes through counseling and faith and for Will it's the unwavering love from his family that supports him most how has your family helped you Will? obviously it's it's been it's been really hard, you know, just the past couple months. Because I started running after the accident, you know, and started just running away from the house. And I remember Caleb, you know, was the first one to run and kind of just jump on me and hold me. And then Showy was right by, right there by him. And and that, to me, you know, that, that meant a ton. Because, you know, I just, I didn't really want to be at the house. I just wanted to be away, you know, and I was just mm -hmm. freaking out. I've gotten a stronger faith through all this. But then there's those days, you know, that just hit you and you're just like, oh, man, this is just... Awful. You just got to continue to choose to live, and that's the faith that you know that continues to keep me going. How have you helped each other as children? When you see someone hurting and you see someone burdened, you you want to take that burden from them, and because you uh, you rather endure that pain yeah. than see your brother, and this case my for real brother, endure that pain. Grief is this windy road I feel like and sometimes you turn the corner and you've got a straightaway and it's beautiful and then you can turn a corner at the end of that straightaway and it's thunderstorms and mountains and it can be hard and even within the same day. My son said the other day that you know you know we are a family a lot of people say you know of great faith but we're a family with a lot of questions but that's what faith is it's living with the questions. Chapman's, the burden is lifted by the grace of grief shared. So Chapman's current hit song, Cinderella, was written one night while getting his little princesses ready for bed. Incredibly, he wrote the words to remind him to appreciate each moment with his girls before they grew up. After losing Maria, Stephen thought he could never sing the song again, but now the words have an even stronger meaning. I have to sing it because I have to continue, you know, this, the, these chapters that are still being written with my two little girls, Shohanna and Stevie Joy, and Emily, who's getting ready to be married. Um, we need to keep living these moments, these living years that we have, these moments that we have. We still, I still need to be engaged in those and I need to be dancing with my Cinderella's I'm gonna dance with Maria again I'm absolutely sure of that
I certainly hope that no one in this audience ever has to go through anything of that proportion. You know, just as I look back at my own family of origin, dad and a mom and three boys, my dad died suddenly of a heart attack, no warning. My older brother, Don, had a major brain aneurysm at the age of 24 that left him paralyzed for life, no warning. One minute he's swimming in a pool, the next minute his life is threatened. Myself, a few years ago, playing in the surf in Hawaii, one minute I'm riding a wave and the next minute my neck is broken in four places. I realize, you know, in just a family of five, three of us have encountered major, major tragedy. That's the reality of life on this earth. So here's the real question. What can we do so that when the wave comes, we don't go down with the wave? That's a very important question. Let's explore that for the next few minutes. And listen to David as he processes this. And we're going to learn five lessons out of five different sections from this psalm. And let's start by reading. O Lord, oppose those who oppose me. Fight those who fight against me. Put on your armor and take up your shield. Prepare for battle and come to my aid. Lift up your spear and javelin against those who pursue me. Let me hear you say, I will give you victory. Bring shame and disgrace on those trying to kill me. Turn back and humiliate those who want to harm me. You think David's serious here? What do you think? That's pretty serious terminology, isn't it? Yeah, let's go on and read. Blow them away like chaff in the wind. You ever want God to blow somebody away? Christians would never want that, right? Unfortunately, sometimes we do. Going on. By a wind sent by the angel of the Lord, make their path dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. Now, God, I did no wrong. I did them no wrong, but they laid a trap for me. And I did them no wrong, but they dug a pit to catch me. So let sudden ruin come upon them. Let them be caught in the trap they set for me. Let them be destroyed in the pit that they dug for me. So there's David. You know, I would kind of call this, this psalm David Uncensored. He just kind of lets it all hang out and said, God, this is how I feel right now. This is what's going on in my life. And it's, it's grossly unfair. And I'm tired of it. And God, I want you to do something about it and not something subtle. I want you to do something big. I want you to do something definite. And I know, God, you got hammers up in heaven, different kinds. Would you get out the big hammer for this one? Isn't that what you hear him saying? Exactly. Now, the first lesson that we can learn is one that it kind of sets the scene for all the others. So let's take a look at lesson number one. Our tendency is to assume that God is on our side. Now, there's a side to that that's good because I'm here to tell you God is on your side. God is for you, but God is not blindly for you. But He is for you. 
But the flip side of that coin is something that you and I dare not neglect or overlook. And that is, well, I wrote down this, this versus this kind of pair. Take a look at it. Assumption versus introspection. It's the tendency of our human nature to kind of go like this. I have good reason to do everything I did. Therefore, I'm kind of innocent and so it's not my fault. And that's kind of where we all start. We, instead of looking inside and asking ourselves a very, very important question. Number one, have I done or am I doing anything that has contributed to this problem or is contributing to it now? That's a really important question to ask. Have I done anything or am I doing anything that's contributing to this problem? Instead of presuming my innocence and just, oh, that's axiomatic because I'm a good guy, right? We're all good people. I'm a good guy. So therefore, I've got nothing to learn here. And that's the second question. Is there anything that God wants me to learn in this setting? Because oftentimes, even if I haven't done anything to cause this, there's a wonderful lesson I could learn if I just open my eyes and open my heart and learn it. And so that's kind of where David should have started. Instead of saying, okay, God, pick up the big hammer and hammer on some dudes for me because they're not treating me fairly, it probably would have been a better deal for David to look on the inside and say, even though I don't know of any wrong that I've done them, maybe there's a lesson in here for me to learn and not just to presume that because I'm not aware of any gross thing that I've done. You know, you know how we excuse things? Okay, I know I yelled and screamed and I got a little heated and maybe once in there I said a word I shouldn't have. But they made me mad. You ever catch yourself saying those things? Where it, you just kind of presume your innocence because of what other people have done. It's at times that God calls us and says, look, I want you to deal with this. So that's lesson number one. Don't miss the opportunity to learn by just presuming that you're innocent and therefore God's on your side. The second thing comes out of the second part of this passage. David said, then I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be glad because he rescues me. For right now, I want you to underline or circle the word then because it's probably the most important word in this section. He goes on to say, with every bone in my body, I will praise him. Lord, who can compare with you? Who else rescues the helpless from the strong? Who else protects the helpless and poor from those who rob them? You see, here we see another human tendency, and that human tendency is this. It's in its lesson number two. We have a tendency to make our praise conditional. My grandfather on my mother's side was a very outspoken pastor. And uh, his, his bedside manner wasn't always the best in terms of how he delivered it, but what he said was normally pretty much right on. And I remember him telling me as I was a young kid growing up and we were talking about something. He said, you know, Ron, I go to the hospital and I visited a lot of people 
who are, who are lying in a hospital bed. In fact, I've sat by the bedside and held the hands of many people who have died. And he said, you know, it's amazing the promises that people make to, to God on a hospital bed. And a guy will be laying there and say, I'll tell you what, Archie, if God will get me out of this hospital and God will get me home, I will go to church every Sunday for the rest of my life. And he said, I look at them and I say, you're in no shape to cut a deal with God. You better get your life right whether he ever gets you out of here or not. You see, the pair that I put underneath this is this. It's easy for us to begin sentences with, if God. You know, if God will do this, then I'll do that. And if God will just come in and make things right in my life, and if God will make sure I get treated fairly, or if God will give me a decent explanation for why this has happened in my life, or Stephen Curtis Chapman saying, if God would just explain to me what's so bad in my life that one of my kids would accidentally run over another one. I mean, how many families does that take place in? Almost none. If God would just explain that to me, I'd be okay. You know, the flip side of that is so much better. The flip side of that is forget the if God will. You and I need to commit ourselves to just I will. I will. You know, one of the most challenging passages in the Bible was penned by a very, very um, obscure prophet in the Old Testament that if you were to have your Bible here this morning and I were to say, let's all take our Bibles and turn to the book of Habakkuk. Some of you would have to look at the index two or three times just to find it. Because you maybe never have heard of this guy. Wrote a very small book. But I'll tell you what, his attitude was just unbelievable. You and I sang a song that in part is based on the passage that we're going to read. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And the first verse of that song talks about when, all, when the world is all as it should be. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Then when we get to the second verse, it's kind of the opposite of that. And that is, when the world's not as it should be, and everything is falling apart, yet still I will say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Habakkuk had that kind of attitude. Take a look at what he said. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no fruit, though there are no sheep in the pen, and no cattle in the stalls. Now, if you're a farmer, and that, and that describes the condition of your ranch, has the depression hit? Yeah, you're beyond a recession. You're in, you're in full-blown depression. That's bad news. Notice what he says. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be... What's the next word? Wow. I mean, when I read that passage, I'm just challenged to the core. Because here's a guy who has encountered the greatest catastrophe a farmer could ever have. He's got nothing. But he said, you know what? I still know what I should do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sing, I'm going to rejoice, and I'm going to be joyful in God my Savior. Wow. We'll come back to that, not to that passage, but that concept a little bit later. You see, so Habakkuk said, I will never make my praise or my walk with God conditional because God doesn't owe me an explanation. Okay? Let's go to lesson number three in the third part. 
David wants to remind God of what's taken place. So he goes, Militia's witnesses testify against me. They accuse me of crimes I know nothing about. They repay me evil for good. I'm sick with despair. Yet when they were ill, I grieved for them. I denied myself by fasting for them. But my prayers returned unanswered. I was sad as though they were my friends or family, as if I was grieving for my own mother. But... They are glad now that I'm in trouble. They gleefully join together against me. I'm attacked by people I don't even know. They slander me constantly. They mock me and call me names. They snarl at me. You know, some of you might be in a situation like that right now. I've had occasion to be with a number of people one-on-one in the last two or three weeks. And, uh, you know, two of them said to me, um, well, I tell you what, the place that I work is vicious. One guy confessed to me, he said, you know, I tend to be a little negative. I tend to be the cup half empty kind of guy. He said, I told my wife the other day, believe it or not, I'm the most positive person at my job. And she said, man, do you need prayer? <laughs> he said, it's just terrible. And he said, I don't know if I can stick with it. It's like David was describing how life was for him. It's just awful. Wow. So what's the next lesson? Here it is. Life in this sinful world, it often is just unfair. I want to teach you a really, really important lesson. Now, I want you to go back to in your mind, the Stephen Curtis Chapman interview that we saw. Because Stephen made a really, really important remark as, he, as they were holding the little, little Maria in their arms and pretty sure that they had lost her. You remember he rolled down the window and he yelled something at his son. He said, Will Franklin, your father loves you. He said, the reason I did that is because I, I, I feared I feared that I would lose two children at the same time. You know, I've known a lot of people who have lost two children at the same time, except it wasn't Maria and Will Franklin. It was their past and their future, and they lost them at one time. You know how they did? Because something happened to them in their past that they didn't understand and weren't willing to accept. And so they decided that they would live the rest of their life being bitter about what took place in their past. And they lost their past and their future all at the same time. They kind of said, you know what? Here are the two words I'm going to give you. I deserve versus I expect. If you ever get those and you try to make them one and the same thing, that I will go through life expecting what I deserve, then what you have said is, I will make life be fair to me. And what did we already agree? Life isn't what? Fair. So in your heart and in your mind, I want to tell you, God would say, learn to separate those two and recognize that you often will not get what you deserve, so don't expect it. 
expect life to give you what life normally gives people. And you know most of it, you don't know until you get it. Isn't that right? Yeah. So you have to deal with it as it comes to you. But if you spend too much time thinking about what you deserve, you set yourself up to be bitter and angry and frustrated and you'll give away your future. God doesn't want you to do that. That's not a fun place to live. Section number four. By the way, let me give you two little things about section number three before we move on. For those who are Christians, we have two wonderful assurances. And I want you to get a hold of these. Do you remember what Stephen said at the very end? He said, of this I know, I will dance with Maria again. Christians know that God gives us a promise. When somebody does something to you and it's unfair and you've been, quote, ripped off in this life, the Bible is very clear that in eternity, God is going to right every wrong. He will. And I want you to live in that hope. Because it's not a person sitting here that isn't going to go through life and have things done to them that are very unfair. You, some of you may get fired from a job because you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, but there's somebody crooked above you, and because they've got the power in their hands, they're going to fire you, and your whole family's livelihood is going to depend upon that job, and they don't care. They're going to fire you. That's going to be tough. But you know something? The second thing I want you to know is that oftentimes God doesn't wait till eternity to make it right. Oftentimes, He starts making it right right here. Because God says, no matter what people do to you, I'm going to make sure you have everything you need in life, and I'm going to make sure that I take care of you. And for Christians, that takes so much pressure out of life because when I'm treated unfairly, I don't have to stand up and try to defend myself. No, I'm not going to be a doormat and just roll over and say, okay, whatever. No, I'm not going to do that. But I recognize even sometimes when I try to get the truth on the table, I recognize that the truth doesn't always prevail in the now. And you know something? God makes sure that eventually the truth prevails. And I've got to learn to trust Him with that. Now let's go to the Next section, number four. How long, O Lord, will you look on and do nothing? Rescue me from their fierce attacks. Protect my life from those lions. Then I will thank you in front of the great assembly. I will praise you before all of the people. And don't let my treacherous enemies rejoice over my defeat. Don't let those who hate me without cause gloat over my sorrow. They don't talk of peace. They plot against innocent people who mind their own business. They shout, aha, aha, with our own eyes. We saw him do it. Oh, Lord, you know all about this. Now, don't stay silent. And please, don't abandon me now, oh, Lord. I want you to circle and underline the word now. Because here's the next tendency we have as human beings. And it's lesson number four. Our tendency is to want fairness now. Isn't that true? Yeah. Yesterday would actually have been better. That's kind of how we live. Okay, God, I got a problem. How about let's solve it today? 
I've been treated unfairly and I would like some justice today. But you see, in this wonderful journey of life that has this, this, this whole uh, component of struggle in it, God recognizes that there's actually good that comes from struggle. So every time we encounter a struggle, God in heaven has to make a, a discernment. Would this struggle be good for us and therefore He needs to leave that struggle in our life? Because here's what I want you to write down. The words development versus convenience or convenience versus development. It would be far more convenient if God would just take away the struggle. But on the other hand, if God always took away the struggle, where would our development and the strength of character come from? Some of you have been watching the Olympics. I know I have. There's been a fellow over there in Beijing who's made a little bit of a splash in the pool. You know what I'm talking about? Michael Phelps. I was watching him interviewed, and do you realize that Michael Phelps eats 10 to 15,000 calories a day? You know, for guys, that's like heaven. It couldn't get any better than that. You know what I've decided? I'm two for three when it comes to Michael Phelps. I want to eat like Michael Phelps. I want to swim like Michael Phelps. But I don't want to train like him. That's the deal. But you know something? Is it the eating that makes Michael Phelps what he is? I don't think so. It's the training that makes Michael Phelps what he is. And you think there's any struggle in that training? Five hours a day in the pool swimming. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever tried to swim for five hours. It might take 10,000 calories to revive you. It wouldn't me for sure. Yeah. I want you to see that in the in the big picture of life, and we come to God and we say, God, I want some relief now. That some of those things, you know, do you think that the, the Chapman family would like relief now? Sure they would. Do you know something? I don't think they're going to get it. In fact, they may go through the entirety of their lives in this earth and never have a real explanation because they might not, they just might not be one. Life in this sinful and fallen world is often unfair. And that was pretty unfair. Yeah. But you know something? If they embrace what happened to them instead of mortgaging their future, you remember what Robin said about them? A family that's closer now than ever and a family that's facing the future with great hope. Wow. That, my friends, is strength of character. Is it coming easy for them? No. I'm with Bob. <laughs> Real God, perfect people, easy life. What's going to be wrong with that? That's just not how life works. It just isn't. And let's go to number five. Number five is this. Wake up. Rise to my defense. Take up my case, my God and my Lord. Declare me not guilty, O Lord my God, for you give justice. Don't let my enemies laugh about me in my troubles. Don't let them say, look, 
we got what we wanted. Now we will eat him alive. May those who rejoice at my troubles be humiliated and disgraced. May those who triumph over me be covered with shame and dishonor, but give great joy to those who come to my defense. Let them continually say, Great is the Lord who delights in blessing his servant with peace. Then I will proclaim your justice and I will praise you all day long. You know, David finally at the end of the psalm realizes that in the end, we can't really vindicate ourselves and even other people can't totally vindicate us. Lesson number five is this, and that is ultimate vindication has to come from God. Now, friends, if the vindication in your life is going to come from God, then the lesson behind that is you and I have to learn to trust Him. I wrote in my notes and I put it in yours. This is the, this is the God is God versus I deserve an explanation. Do you realize how much simpler life would be if you and I didn't make God give us an explanation? Every time something went away that we don't think it should. As I said before, most of the bitterness that I have seen in people in this life has its origin in something unfair happened and I deserve an explanation and I'm not moving on until I get that explanation. The sad reality is, if any of us chooses that, we're, we're absolutely forfeiting our future because we don't like our past. You know what God says? Okay, I can't explain everything to you. But you know what? I want you to trust me. I'm your father. I care about what happens in this life. And I know that in many cases you've been treated unfairly. But here's the deal. I'm going to make sure you have a future that's okay. And I'm going to make sure you have everything you need for the future. And anything that isn't made up to you in this life, I will more than make it up to you in eternity. So let's just get on with living the rest of life. Trust me, would you? The worship band is going to come and sing a song. And while they sing, I want, I want the words to kind of sink down into your heart and mind because I believe with all of my heart if God could stand physically on the stage this morning and He had a message He would give to you and me about the struggles that we encounter in this life, I think this would be the message that He would give. And while they sing, it's called Call My Name. While they sing, I, I want you to do what we started out way back at the beginning of this sermon talking about, and that is that introspection thing. And to identify it might be something in your past that because of, because of what's happened in your past, it just casts this cloud over the future. And you kind of refuse to look at the future without that cloud hovering over it. What's even worse is you're finding yourself drawing your identity from some horrible thing that took place in your past. Oh yeah, I'm the guy who, or I'm the gal who. And that becomes your identity. That's how you see yourself. And it's how you explain your life to people around you. I went through a period like that. 
I went through a period where I got treated very poorly and very unjustly so by a church. And I found myself for the next year or two explaining who I was in light of what had taken place in my past. And one day God spoke to me about that and said, Ron, that's not your identity. That's not how I want you to see your life. That's not who I created you to be. I want you to just let go of it. And you don't ever have to explain it again. That was liberating for me. I got my future back. So I want to encourage you as the worship band sings. Identify whatever it is. And begin to say to God, God, from this day on, I trust you with that. Would you pray with me, Lord? Would you give us grace to fully trust so that you could give us a future that's untainted by anything that happened in the past so that we don't demand that you take vengeance on our account, that we don't have to keep score of what took place in the lives of the people who treated us unfairly. But we can just trust and begin to look to the future that we could call from. I pray in Jesus' name.